beginning in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." And then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is God's word to us. Uh, Please join me in in praying, and then we'll take a look at this, okay? Father, I I pray now uh, that you would come and that you would help us to understand this. Uh, You know that we have no hope of knowing what this means apart from your Spirit's help. And so we pray, would you come and would you meet us by your Spirit and uh, through your word? And we ask that now, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're crossing a threshold here in chapter 4 of Ephesians. If you've been with us this semester, we've said that the book of Ephesians is divided into two halves. The first half, the first three chapters, is all about what God himself has done in the gospel. And this is why the gospel literally means good news, because something has already happened, something has accomplished, and we're just reporting the news. And so for three chapters, Paul spins us, uh, Paul elaborates what has actually been accomplished in this good news. And so he begins in chapter one and just piles on that God has elected you, God has redeemed you, God has adopted you, God has liberated you from your slavery. God has reconciled you to God. God has united your enemies together. God has plans to one day fix the whole universe. I mean, on and on and on. He just piles up everything that God has done to make you acceptable before him. And then we get into chapter four. And through the rest of the book, for the second half of the book of Ephesians, we now begin to find out what we are to do in light of what God himself has done. Here's where we get all into 
commands and uh, the call to obey God. Yes, we are called to obey God in light of what he has himself already done. That's where you get the power. The first three chapters is where you get the power to live out all of these commands that we're going to begin to find over and over and over in chapter 4, 5, and 6. In fact, the only command, the only word in the imperative sense in the whole first half of the book is the, is the word remember. Paul just wants you to remember the gospel and take it in. And therefore, in light of that, now begin to play it out. And here's how it looks like practically and concretely. So for the rest of the semester, we're going to look at what it means to practically live in light of all of this stuff in chapters 1 through 3. I mean, just look at verse 1 in chapter 4. It says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, here's how we're going to begin to talk about how to live consistently with all this gospel of grace stuff. And we just have to stop right here and notice that the order is unbelievably important. Because if it were any other religion, if it were any other philosophy, any other worldview, they would have taken the second three chapters and put them first. And said, here's all the rules that you got to keep. Here's what you got to do. Here's the commands. Here's the obedience. And therefore, in light of all that, then you'll be acceptable to God. And so the basic formula it would boil down to is, I obey, therefore God accepts me. But the whole order of Ephesians flips this on its head and says you are already accepted by God because of what Jesus has done. It has nothing to do with your obedience. It has everything to do with Jesus. And therefore, in light of that, In light of being accepted, therefore I obey. Every other religion is I obey, therefore God accepts me. The gospel is you are accepted because of Jesus and therefore I obey. You have to see the order because it boils down. I mean, this is what Christianity is. It comes down to this order. So here's the thing. He spends three chapters piling up this huge symphony of everything that God has done. And he's getting ready to just cross the threshold and say, therefore, in light of all of this, here's what I want you to do. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is really interesting. The very first thing that comes out of his mouth is, therefore, in light of all of this gospel of grace stuff, I want you to get along with each other. That's the very first imperative, the very first command, the very first rule that comes out of his mouth and says, here's what it looks like to live concretely in light of the gospel, is get along with each other. Unity. That is the thing that is at the heart and center of this passage tonight. Unity. And I want to look at this from two different angles. I want to look at it under the first heading of the foundation of unity, and then secondly, the form of unity. So just two points tonight. The foundation of unity and the form of unity. Okay? Here's the first point. Paul says, what is the foundation? Uh, How do we get this unity stuff? Think think of uh, the game that's coming up this Saturday. There's unbelievable unity that's going to take place. I mean, people are all going to be cheering the same things. They're even going to be wearing a lot of the same things, certainly a lot of the same colors. Everyone's going to be decked out in their uh, black and their gold and cheering for app, right? And so what happens to all of this unity A few hours later, when thousands of people are trying to exit the parking lot and exit Boone at the same exact time, (laughs) unity quickly begins to dissolve, right? I mean, horns are honking, people are getting angry. The the people who are cheering with uh, their fingers raised in the air with that foam finger that says number one are raising very different fingers in the parking lot (laughs) when they're trying to get out of town, right? Unity begins to dissolve, and it's a tragedy. Everyone hates disunity. I mean, the Beatles broke up. 
That is awful. That is tragic. <laughs> Unity is a good thing, and we want it, and everybody wants it. And therefore, everybody, you know, you'll, you'll find these campus-wide events to try and unite the campus, or you'll hear about these things to try and unite the world together. Everybody's sick of the fighting, sick of taking sides. Like, why can't we just all get along? And if you noticed, it doesn't really seem to work. It feels like we're chasing this ghost called unity of getting along with each other. How do we get it? How can we get real human unity with each other? Well, Paul tells you, and he tells you in verses 4 through 6. It, it, you may have noticed when we read it, but this is a very odd sentence because he says the word one seven times. I mean, did you notice that? Uh, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Seven times. What is going on with that? Every commentary and scholar that I looked at says and agrees that Paul's being poetic here. Because in the Jewish mind, the number seven is a loaded number. It's symbolic. He's being poetic because what the number seven means in the Bible is completeness. It means perfection. I mean, if you think about the book of Genesis, the creation week, God rested on the seventh day and his work of creation was done. It was complete. Or if you look at the number seven in the book of Revelation, it comes up all the time in reference to completion, in reference to perfection. And so what Paul is saying here is that oneness, unity, perfect, complete oneness is possible. It is. But it is only possible in Christian community. Now that's a big statement. And that is a big claim. How can he say that? And furthermore, what is he getting at? Well, I want you to see, and we're going to unpack this, that really Christianity is the only worldview that has the theological resources to make sense of community, okay? Now, I want you to buckle in because this may get a little dense for a few minutes. So, So take a big, deep breath and strap yourselves in. Give yourself a quick neck massage. But, um... This is going to get a little dense, but I want you to notice that when he starts talking about this, he brings in the Trinity. Did you notice that all three members of the Trinity pop up in his little little one spiel here? He says one spirit. He says one Lord, which is referring to Jesus, the Son. And then he says one God and Father. Father, Son, Spirit. Why would Paul bring in the idea of the Trinity at this point in his discussion about unity? That's the question. That is the million-dollar question. I want to talk for a second for those of you in the room who don't self-consciously identify yourselves as Christians because you, just like everybody else, has to have an explanation for why reality exists. Why is this all here? And furthermore, what is behind reality? What's kind of at the bedrock essence of what makes reality the way that it is? In other words... Uh, is, is your understanding of the basic bedrock fabric of reality. Is it love or is it uh, chaos and randomness? Is it struggle? You have to kind of answer and say, okay, the basic bedrock essence of reality is something. And the question is, well, what is it? The Christian answer to that question is that the bedrock explanation, the bedrock essence of reality is love and relationship. And the reason why the Christian answer is that answer is because the Christian says at the center of reality is God. And at the center of God is love and relationship. And here's why the Christian can say this is because the the Christian understanding of who God is is that he is a trinity. One God 
who himself exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have from all eternity been in mutual love and adoration with each other from all eternity. God himself has always been love, has always been relationship, has always been a friendship. The Father has always been delighting and enjoying the Son and the Spirit. The Son has always been enjoying and delighting the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit has always been enjoying and delighting the Father and the Son from all eternity. Okay? Here's why this matters. Because the understanding of the Trinity is the only explanation and provides the only rational basis for unity. Any attempt at unity doesn't even make sense apart from it being founded upon the Trinity. Let me explain what I mean even a little bit further. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, puts it this way. Great, great quote. He says, all sorts of people, and he's referring to Christians, non-Christians, whoever else, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Because love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. You see what he's saying? He is saying, Everyone likes to think of God as a loving God. He's, he's, he's loving. You know, regardless of where you, you know, if you're a Christian or not, everybody kind of has this general idea that if there is a God, he's loving. But what does that mean unless he's always been loving? Because think of it like this. If God is just one God, one person, when did he first enter into relationship? When did he first start to love something? It's when he first created something, the first angel, the first person, the first whatever. And therefore, love and relationship came in after the fact. It's peripheral. It's not intrinsic to who he is. And therefore, it can't be intrinsic to reality. It's not built into the whole system. But the Christian understanding is that God has always been that way. God has always been in relationship, always been in love. And because he's at the center of reality, relationship and love is at the center of reality. And so here's what this means. If your view of God is not the Christian understanding of God, then your views of unity have a deep cosmic instability built into it. And it makes it impossible and, and, and frankly, inconsistent with your view of the world. Only when you have the foundation of the Trinity can, does unity even make sense and is unity even possible. Well, you say, well, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, or I believe that God is some impersonal force. Well, that means that you think that the center of the universe is randomness and, and chaos. It can't be love and can't be relationship. Whatever view of the world that you have, if it is not founded on the Trinity, unity is an impossibility. Or at least it, it just doesn't make sense with the basic structure of your worldview. Only the Trinity provides the foundation for unity. That's what he's saying. The dense part's over. You can relax. But I do want to talk to those of you in the room who do, who do identify yourselves as Christians, who do seem to believe all this weird stuff about Trinity being one in three and how that all works. I want to talk to you for a second. How can you relate to a God who is himself a harmonious community when you are not in harmony with community yourself? I'll repeat it. <laughs> if you claim to have your life based on the God of the Bible, which is the Trinity, 
who is himself a harmonious community, how can you claim to relate to him when you are not in harmony with community yourself? It doesn't make sense. It's inconsistent with who you say you are building your entire life on. This is so huge. Getting along with each other, unity. But this is the first thing out of Paul's mouth when he says, here's what the Christian life begins to actually look like. So here's the application of all of this. Here's what all of this boils down to. It's right there in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is actually emphatic in the original language. He would have bolded this or underlined this if that's how they did it back then. Make every effort to get along with each other. This is so huge and so serious of an idea. I just want to camp here for a little bit. We'll get to the second point in a second. But I just want to draw out three implications of this before we move on because this really is hugely important. Here's the first implication. If you do claim to be a Christian meaning you, you are founding your life on the God of the Bible, on the Trinity, then this changes who you interact with. That's the first implication. It changes who you interact with. Because what this means is that you can't avoid certain people anymore. Because the tendency is to walk into a room like this or to walk in, you know, come to a place like RUF or whatever, and your instinct is to scan the room for one of two people, either people that you know or people that you find attractive and socially cool. And those are the people that you move towards. And if you scan the room and see people that you don't know or people that you find unattractive or socially awkward, those are the people that you veer away from. And what this means is that you don't have that option anymore. Not in Trinity-grounded unity. Make every effort to get along with each other. And that means you don't have the option of saying, oh, I don't want to be seen with them, I don't want to associate with them. You don't have that option anymore. You have to see that as selfish consumerism. That is not love. That is not unity. That is not consistent with the Trinity. Does that make sense? Here's the second implication. If you claim to be a Christian, then this changes how you do conflict. Now, we could talk all night about this, but we're not going to. But what I do want to say is that um, conflict is really hard for us. Uh, I know what it's like. You get really annoyed with your roommate. The walls feel like they're getting closer and closer than they did at the beginning of the semester. You get really annoyed with your roommate, or you just have this friendship that starts to experience some really turbulent patches. And so usually the way that we do conflict is, one, is that we just kind of peace out on the whole relationship. Just write them off all together and say, you know what, I'm done with this relationship. It's, It's too frustrating. It's too hard. I'm done with you. That's option one. Or option two is that you uh, uh, com- confront your friend, but not with a motive to reconcile, but with a motive to retaliate. I want you to feel this the way that you've made me feel this. And what this is saying, make every effort to get along with each other, is that if you claim to be a Christian, you don't have those two options anymore. You cannot write people off nor knock them down but come to them out of the motive of love to reconcile and and to make every effort to get along with each other. This does not mean that you have to be best friends with everybody. This does does not mean that if you're in a relationship and you've been broken up that you have to get back together. This does not mean that if you have a friendship that was once really close and begin to, you know, just go your separate ways, that's okay. What this is saying, though, is that when conflict happens, you move towards the other person out of love. Not out of just writing them off and not out of just beating them up. 
You don't have that option in Trinity-grounded, Trinity-founded community. Little side note, by the way, you know this is the whole assumption behind why app makes you fill out those applications when you enter into the dorms. You know what I'm talking about? Where you fill out those things and say, do you drink? Do you smoke? Do you want your room clean? Do you stay up till 7 or whatever? You know, this, this, the whole reason behind why they make you fill out those things is because they assume you don't do conflict well. And so the idea is, well, let's, let's minimize conflict by getting people who are absolutely similar together. And that way, though, they won't fight because they don't know how to handle it. And the truth is, you don't know how to handle it. Even people who claim to believe in the Trinity and founded their life on the Trinity, it's still hard for us to handle it. <laughs> conflict is hard. Third implication, and I promise we're done with this point, we'll move on. If you claim to be a Christian, this changes how you do humor. This changes how you do humor. Because you have to see that sarcasm can be poisonous to unity. I have been a part of small groups and I've seen small groups where something like this happens. Somebody shares something in the group and is vulnerable. And because it's such a weighty thing and nobody really knows how to handle what was just dropped in the middle of the room, just sort of the reflex is to make a joke. Usually sarcastic, sometimes at the person's expense, like, Whoa, sucks for you. And what happens? <laughs> what happens when that happens is that everybody then begins to say, Oh, if that's how I'm going to get treated if I'm vulnerable, there's no way I'm going to risk and put this out there and just risk getting shredded by somebody's attempt at humor. And so what happens is everybody pulls back, doesn't let anybody in, and the whole group kind of takes on this snide cynical, sarcasm, kind of saturated flavor to it. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, we just kind of joke around with each other and pick on each other, but there is no real unity. There is no real vulnerability anymore because of the way that we joke. And friends, we have to repent of the way that we joke. We have to repent of the way that we do humor. I'm not saying that sarcasm is off limits as a Christian. I'm just saying you have to ask yourself the question, Am I using humor as a way to foster unity or as a way to inadvertently destroy unity? This is such a huge idea that in Matthew 5, Jesus says, hey, if you're at church offering a gift and you suddenly realize that somebody else out there has a problem with you, leave your gift and go reconcile to this person. If there's disunity, that is the priority. Jesus actually says, you have to leave church He gives you permission to leave church if there is disunity. Because the basic idea of is, how can you come in here and do Christian worship when you are out of line with your neighbor? It doesn't make any sense to come in here and think everything is all uh, cool with me when you are in disunity with other people out there. Make every effort to get along with each other. When I was in college... I uh, lived in a house with four other guys. So it was five guys living in a house that was small. And it was stinky and terrible and filled with garbage. And you can only imagine how putrid and terrible the place was. Uh, But what happened is that one of my uh, friends, one of my uh, roommates, uh, housemates in in the house, uh, got a girlfriend. And she started uh, sleeping over in his bed in our house. And this was a house full of guys that were claiming to identify with Jesus and walk with him. And so uh, I was really upset by this. I'm like, hey, first of all, this is just not cool as a roommate to kind of violate the the code of having girls sleep over like this. And second of all, um, this is just not a very Christian thing to do. And so what did I do? 
go talk to my friend? Nope. I went and talked to the other guys in the house. And was like, dude, can you believe this guy? Like, that is uh, not cool. That is not Christian. That is, that is uh, not good. And so... Um, <laughs> What was I doing, though? I was cultivating disunity. I was gossiping and fostering anger and kind of division within the house. And here's what this passage is saying. God is just as offended and just as upset by my lack of fostering unity as this guy was for sleeping with his girlfriend. That's how serious this is. That's why this is the first thing out of Paul's mouth. Make every effort to get along with each other. That is the foundation of unity. It's tr- the Trinity. That's the first thing. But, but I know that some of you, this may raise a question of, okay, all this Christian unity talk raises the question of, this means all y'all are just going to look the same. Unity is just going to be just this boring, homogenous group where you look the same, dress the same, vote the same, are the same. And what I want you to see secondly is that there is a form to this unity. The form that this unity takes shape is diversity. The foundation of unity is the Trinity, and the form is diversity, and I promise we'll be much briefer on this point. But Paul begins this next section in verse 7 by saying, we are all different because we all have different gifts. Look in verse uh, 7 with me. It says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is saying that to each person, Jesus has given different gifts. Now, in the ancient world, whenever an emperor or a king or a warrior conquered a, a, a nation or conquered a tribe or something, what they would do is they would take the spoils of war and kind of load them up on chariots and horses and then go back to the original town where they came from and basically have this huge like homecoming celebration parade where they come back and they're leading all of the prisoners of war with them and all of the riches, all of the spoils of war that they took with them. What the emperor would do is he would start dishing out all of the goods to all of the people kind of in this homecoming parade. He'd throw out the riches and the the money and and the food and whatever. And so what happens is that everybody would have known that this is sort of the, the custom of the military when a victorious emperor or king or general comes back, that's what he does. And what's interesting is that Paul takes this image and applies it to Jesus. Look in verse uh, 8. It's really interesting. This is why it says, When he, that's Jesus, ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Jesus is pictured as this victorious, conquering king who, who left heaven, descended to the earth to do battle. And at the cross, he defeated sin and Satan and death. And then once he was raised from the dead, He ascended back into heaven, kind of his homecoming party, and he's throwing out gifts as he does it. And what are the gifts that he is throwing out? Look at it in verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Jesus is throwing out these gifts. He's saying, here's a pastor, here's an evangelist, here's an apostle, here's whoever. This is referring to spiritual gifts. This is not the only list in the Bible. Sometimes Jesus, uh, other places, Paul will say, and, and sometimes Jesus throws out people who uh, are really uh, devoted to mercy or who are great teachers or who are encouragers or people who are just uh, uh, thoughtful givers. These are kind of the, the spiritual gifts that Jesus is just tossing around. 
And what I want you to see is that the church of Jesus, with all of its giftedness, is unbelievably diverse. Not everybody is called to be a missionary or a mother or a musician. We do not look the same. We do not dress the same. We do not listen to the same music. We do not have the same political orientation. We do not have the same personality types. We don't listen to the same music, which I already said, the same the different backgrounds. We're very different. This is the diversity of the church. And here's the question. Why does Jesus give us this diversity? The reason is because he knows that we need it. We need it. This is why he uses that image of the body, which I won't read, but it's in verse uh, 16, where he says that the body of Christ is unbelievably diverse with all of its different parts. I mean, the hand is very different from your nose. Your foot is very different from your patella. You know, it's very, you look very different. But all of these different parts are working together and they're unified. The diversity doesn't hinder it. It actually enhances it. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what Paul is saying. You need to be around different people. You need other people. And believe it or not, other people need you. That's what what he's getting at here. You need to be around people of different ethnicities. There is this um, pastor who is a pastor of this urban uh, multiracial Uh, church in Chattanooga. And uh, here's what he says. I quote, black folk will fixate on one attribute of God and sing it a hundred times in a song. White folk will squeeze out all of the attributes of God in one song by having 10 verses. (laughs) You know what? We need both. We need both cultural expressions because they both amplify and accentuate certain things that we would be blind to if we were just stuck in our own little cultural way. If, If you want to get to know God in a deeper way, Hang out with somebody who loves Jesus who is from a different ethnicity, from a different cultural background. If you want to get to know yourself in a deeper way, hang out with somebody who loves Jesus from a different ethnicity. I promise you, it will expose things in you you don't want exposed, but it will be good for you. We need to hang out with people of different ethnicities, but also people of different generations, different ages. You know, we need to be around four-year-olds who are singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There is something sweet and and simple about hearing that from somebody who is singing something that is absolutely true. You need to be able to hang around with people who are in their 70s, who are gentle and patient and unhurried, so that you have a picture of what Jesus is going to do in you. Where are we going to find a community that is going to be ethnically diverse, where you can hang out with Asians and Caucasians and African Americans and everybody else? People that you can rub shoulders with who are in their 70s and who are toddlers running around. Where are you going to find a community like that? The church. No surprise, this has been a constant theme of the book of Ephesians. It's the centrality and the importance of the local church. And the point is that you have to go there. You have to get involved there. Otherwise, you're going to self-destruct as a Christian. The Bible doesn't know anything about a solitary Christian of just you and Jesus. You need other people. And believe it or not, the church needs you. You have gifts and abilities that the church needs. I'm terrible with money. I'm terrible with budgeting. My wife is great at it. I need her to make my life function. The church needs you. And the reality is is that you need the church too. The thrust of this whole passage is that you need the church founded in unity on the Trinity and formed in unity by diversity. Now, let me wrap up uh, here, because I know some of you may be thinking, okay, so Matt, all, this all boils down to I've got to go to church? That's the whole point of all this? Well, yes and no. 
Yes, uh, because yeah, you cannot be consistent with the Trinity apart from being involved in a community, the local church. So yeah, get involved in the church, pick one, dive in. I know it's hard, especially if you're new to Boone and you don't know churches and it's hard to find a home. I know, keep trying. Yes, but also no, this isn't just, hey, here's what good little Christians do is they go to church on Sunday so we can check boxes and feel good about ourselves or just have one more thing to feel guilty about if we don't go. This is not what this is about. This is about a deeper ethic of love, about love as a way of life. Here's the last verse that I want to read. It's verse 2. He says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. The only way that you will have the power and the ability to bear with one another in love is if you first see how much Jesus has bore with you in love. That's the only way that you'll get the power to do this and the ability to do this. When you see Jesus being patient with you time after time as you screw up and fail and let him down and disappoint him and you see Jesus being patient with you, that's where you get the power to be patient with your roommate and with your friend and yes, with your church that frustrates you. When you see Jesus as the one who is forgiving you of your sin, as enormous and as ugly as it is, that's what gives you the power and the ability to start forgiving the sin of your roommate or of your friend, and yes, of your church that sins against you sometimes. Only when you see Jesus as sacrificially laying down his life for you, that's where you get the power to sacrificially begin to lay down your life for others and make every effort to keep the unity. I'm going to close out with this song lyric by Derek Webb who is one of my favorite musicians. He's a Christian artist. And he's got this song called The Church. And it's written from the vantage point of Jesus himself. And the chorus is really interesting and thought-provoking. I want to read it to you. Now remember, this is from the perspective of Jesus. Here's what he says. Because I haven't come for only you, but for my people to pursue. You cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, you will love the church. You cannot care for Jesus with no regard for his bride. If you love him, you will love the church. The question is, do you? I'm going to leave you with that. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart for other people, that you would make love a, a, a reorienting ethic of our entire life, and that that means that we would get plugged in and immersed with the diversity of your church, with your body, with four-year-olds and 70-year-olds and people who are uh, different culturally and ethnically from us, I pray that you would expose us to this type of community, that we would be, that we would see the diversity and the unity combined and therefore give us a deeper insight into who you are as one who perfectly embodies unity and diversity. Father, I know that a lot of this was thick and a lot of this was dense, but I pray that it would be real and uh, practical to us. Uh, Give us eyes to see Jesus and therefore give us a heart to love other people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.